Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue this week with Dr. Newfeld's new series, The Hope of the Ages. So turning your Bibles to 1st and 2nd Samuel, as Dr. John brings us a message titled, Christ the Better David. Whenever it's election season, while we hear those politicians that are presently in power defending their record while in government, and then there are those politicians who would like to get into power, they promise to clean up the mess that the other government has left. You know, in a way, I think they're both right. God has instituted human government according to his will, and he's given human beings that are in the image of God the remarkable calling of government. Laws that are to be justly applied to all people are often applied in just that way. Order is maintained. The economy gives prosperity to millions, even the majority. So much to be thankful for when we think of government. But because all human beings are fallen, corruption, unjust laws, greed, and strife abound. And of course, both the good and the bad are seen in differing measures at different times and in different places in government. And through this all, we long for something better, even while we're aware it could be a great deal worse than it is. See, the story of the Messiah, the coming of a Savior, has much to say about government. Isaiah 9 verse 7 says of the Messiah, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Revelation 12 verse 5 says, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So to call Jesus the Messiah is to call him the one who has come to rule the world. The world longs for a perfectly just ruler. The one that was born in Bethlehem is destined to be just that. So today I want to compare Jesus to King David. Remember that it was Isaiah who promised us that Jesus would sit on David's throne. And so a comparison of Jesus with David is an obvious comparison. Indeed, Jesus was often called the son of David. Indeed, the entire New Testament begins with the words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Matthew 9:27 says, And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David! Matthew 15:22 says, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. And then Matthew 20, verse 30 says, And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Matthew 21, verse 9 says, And crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. And so in comparing Jesus with David, let's begin with some obvious comparisons. The first is that David was a shepherd. You remember that Samuel the prophet had come to the home of his father Jesse in order to anoint the next king of Israel. David was the youngest in the family, and he was also considered of no importance and so was left to take care of the sheep. Even though Jesus himself was not a shepherd, and yet he called himself one. John 10, 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. Now, you might argue that it's stretching it just a bit here. I mean, after all, David was a literal shepherd, and Jesus was only using the term in a metaphorical sense. But David also used the term in a metaphorical sense. 
Psalm 78, 70, 72 says, Of God, he chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes. He brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them, guided them with a skillful hand. You know, sheep need a shepherd, or else the predators that long to feed on them, they're going to kill them. And when David became the king of Israel, the nation was constantly at war. Indeed, the Philistines had just recently defeated Israel in a decisive battle. That was the battle on Mount Gilboa, 1010 BC. King Saul and three of his sons were killed. It was not just defeat, it was utter humiliation. It made Israel vulnerable. All their safety was stripped away. David's kingship is a remarkable achievement. David utterly defeated the Philistines to the west. He defeated the nations of Moab and Ammon to the east, that is, on the eastern side of the Jordan. To the north, he defeated Syria and extended his territory all the way to the Euphrates. In short, he managed to secure the borders of his nation, and for the first time, he made Israel a nation with recognizable borders rather than a series of tribes locked in constant tribal warfare. Like a good shepherd, he took away the predators and he gave Israel peace. So you might ask, how is that like Jesus? I mean, after all, there are many in Jesus' time who were expecting him to sit on David's ancient throne and, like David, defeat Israel's enemies. Now, in that, we would think that he should have defeated Rome, or at the very least, ended Roman occupation of Israel, but he didn't. You might remember Zechariah's prayer following the birth of his son John. You know, he spoke of the oath that God had sworn to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. You know, this thing about Roman occupation of Israel, well, it was a strange thing. If you know your history, Antiochus, the Syrian king, ruled over Israel brutally. And then beginning in 167 BC, the Maccabees, they were a priestly family in Israel, Well, they organized a successful revolt against Antiochus and his Seleucid reign. It was very much a David and Goliath story, which, against all odds, Israel defeated their oppressors. And so by 161 BC, the Jews regained their territory and they ruled their own people. And they continued to do so until 63 BC, when the Romans, through a series of events, came to rule over Israel. And so for almost a hundred years, Israel was an independent nation. By the time of the birth of Jesus, however, the Romans had ruled over Israel now for some 60 years. They were again an occupied nation. When Herod the Great died in 4 BC, shortly after Jesus' birth, there was in fact a messianic uprising in Jerusalem. The Romans then came in and they crushed it by force. They crucified some 2,000 rebels in Jerusalem, and that got everyone's attention. And after Jesus, in AD 66 to 70, there came a period of time called the Jewish War with Rome, in which the Romans butchered the Jews and chased the remaining Jews from the Promised Land, where they remained as exiles until the year 1948. It's a remarkable story. But I mention all of this so that we might get a sense that Jesus did not, like David, deliver Israel from their oppressors. The oppressors remained during Jesus' entire ministry, and after it, the oppressors overwhelmingly prevailed over them. The crimes against the Jews were many. And so from that perspective, you might think that Jesus was not greater than David. Rather, it seems like David was greater than Jesus. 
But that will depend on what you consider to be the greatest oppression. And let me explain that. One of the problems that faced Israel, not only in David's day, but throughout their entire history, was the problem of worshiping other gods. Well, that problem goes all the way back to the time of the patriarchs. You might remember that when Jacob was fleeing from Laban, that his wife Rachel hid the household gods that she had stolen from her father in the saddlebag of her donkey. You might also remember that in Genesis 35, Jacob had to tell his sons, as well as the rest of the family, they were to put away all their foreign gods that they had accumulated. And that problem, the problem of worshiping the one true God who had forbidden the worshiping of any other God, and all the while, yet they were worshiping foreign gods. That's the greatest problem in the First Testament. Yes, I said it was the greatest problem. Not the nations surrounding Israel, but the gods of those nations. At the time of David, it was Baal worship along with Asherah and Chemosh, the god of the Moabites. That god was overwhelmingly cruel and demanded infant sacrifice. And then there was Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and that was associated with divination and the occult. Dagon was the god of the Philistines. Each nation had gods that continually seduced Israel into infidelity. You know, a part of David's campaigns can be traced to getting a handle on that problem with idolatry. Go back to the time of Moses, and remember that Moses said, Deuteronomy 32, 16, and 17, they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. And so Moses identified the gods of the nations as demonic. And so in the First Testament, you get two different things said about the gods of the nations. First, the idols are nothing. They're a a block of wood or a piece of stone. They can't save you in the day of trouble. But then there's also a realization that behind those gods stand the demons who oppress the people and motivate the people to do terrible evil. David did nothing about the demons. He was unable to. Yes, he was able to defeat the nations who had these gods, but the demons themselves were still among them. Great King David was helpless against them. Back to the Bible Canada is dedicated to the clear presentation of God's good news. The comfort and joy of the gospel are not seasonal. All year round, this ministry carries the power of God's Word, which transforms hearts and homes, always striving to use resources to expand our opportunity to share the gospel and connect with people through an ever-increasing lineup of Bible teaching programming. For this purpose, we rely upon the generosity and partnership of God's people to fulfill this great mission. Your financial gifts are more than kindness. They are a participation in seeding God's Word and a trust in kingdom work. You may be considering a year-end donation for this purpose. In advance, thank you. Placing our gifts into the activity of God will never disappoint. Call us today to make your year-end ministry gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. Jesus did many miracles. David did none. By my count, there are in all the four Gospels 35 separate miracle accounts. These miracles can be divided into a number of different categories. 
You know, for instance, there are a number, 16, I think, miracles that deal with healing. You know, then there are a number of nature miracles like walking on water and calming the storm. There are feeding miracles like the 5,000. But the Gospels also describe seven miracles that deal with the driving out of demons. But the seven mentioned are not an exhaustive list. We know that's true because on just one occasion, Matthew 8:16, it says, That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. How many were oppressed by demons that night? We don't know. Matthew doesn't tell us, but there were many. And that leads us to a startling conclusion. Israel at the time of Jesus was a nation that had an alarming number of cases of demon possession. And a little reflection might tell us why that was so. First of all, we know that the Babylonian captivity led to a profound realization about the evils of idolatry. It led to Israel's defeat at the hand of their enemies, for their God would no longer defend them. You know, reading the prophets who prophesied against Israel, it finally led the nation to understand that idolatry brings the opposite to what King David gave them. But of course, long before David, Moses had already prophesied these things. He said in Deuteronomy 28:25, "The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, and you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth." That's what happened. And so by the time of Jesus, the nation had finally and ultimately ended her love affair with the idols. But and this is such an important thing. The spirits of those idolatrous gods had not been rooted out of their hearts. So the representations, the wood and stone objects, were gone. But the old spirit of rebellion against the God of Israel, that didn't go away. Indeed, the rebellion against God is now disguised, far more sophisticated now. That rebellion is in terms of a works mentality that believed that they could impress God by their works so that God would be obligated to bless them. So the stone depictions were gone, but the demon idolatry was there. The land was full of demons, and David the great conqueror had been unable to drive out any of those demons. Until the greater David arrived, Matthew 8, 28 to 29, and when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What do you have to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? That is, for the first time, the demons saw one who was strong enough to throw them into eternal torment, and they were terrified of him. Of course, Jesus not only fought the demons and won, but he did more. He also fought against the effects of Adamic sin. The lame walked, the blind saw, the deaf heard, the good news was preached to the poor. David did none of that. But of course, Jesus' victory is far greater than any victory that David ever fought. Colossians 2, 13 to 15 says, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Now hear this. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now stop and consider this. This passage written by Paul is about Jesus' death on the cross. Paul starts by affirming that the greatest bondage the human race knows is dead in trespasses. Sin reigns in our lives. 
You know, even if we got political freedom from our enemies, yet the greatest enemy, the one that lies in our souls, our sin nature, our natural tendency to rebel against God, to fight against his ways, all of this remains and it's characterized by death. It means that we're destined to eternal death or eternal judgment, but it also means we are dead in the sins themselves. Conversion in every single case is God raising the dead. When anyone bends the knee and believes on Jesus as the only Son of God and believes that he died on the cross for their sins and consequently confesses their sins and renounces them and invites Christ to be Lord of their lives, that event is a miracle. It's as if Jesus were standing at the tomb of Lazarus, the dead man, dead and rotting in his tomb, and Jesus cries out, come forth. That's what happened to each of us who have been converted. Now then, says Colossians, Jesus made you alive together with him. And then he tells how he did that. The first thing he did was that he canceled the debt that stood against us. A lifetime of sinning had been accumulated and the record had been kept in heaven. And that record was overwhelmingly damning. And then this record was set aside. Indeed, the record was nailed to the cross. Jesus, when he died on the cross, took the record of all who hope in him. That record was charged to himself as he hung there and suffered for us. But in describing that, Paul's not done. He said that Christ suffered the penalty for our sins, and in so doing, he says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. So who are the rulers and authorities? Huh. They're the very demons we've been talking about. They are, as Paul says in Ephesians, the rulers and authorities or the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. John, in describing our dilemma, 1 John 5:19 says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. See, it's the evil one that inspires hatred of God. He inspires hatred of one another. He's the author of lying. He's the author of death. He's the author of killing and warfare. He's the enemy of God and the enemy of the human race. And the tragedy is that the whole world lies in his power. So think back to David. And God had given the promised land to Abraham. And Moses was leading the people there, having brought them out of Egypt. But Moses himself sinned and was unable to lead the people to the promised land. But, but Joshua did. And he conquered the nations who were there and opened up the land of promise. But no sooner was Joshua's body cold in the ground when a generation arose who worshipped the Baals and the Asherahs and had forgotten the law of God. And so there's a cycle. The people forget God. God sells them into the hands of their enemies. The people are hard-pressed and they cry out to God and God sends them a deliverer. And the next step, the people forget God. The cycle just continues. But David, the great king, ended the cycle. He drove out the enemies and secured the borders, and the land was safe. But was it? Well, it wasn't, for the people again sinned, and God sold them to the Babylonians. See, by the time of Jesus, Israel was an occupied land, and this time it was the Romans more powerful and imposing than any enemy they'd known before. And so they wanted a Messiah, one who would sit on David's throne and drive out their enemies again. And if that's what Jesus would have done, the cycle would have just continued. Instead, Jesus took on the evil one himself and his demonic hordes. By taking our record of dead and nailing it to the cross, the authority of Satan over God's people was broken. The demons were publicly humiliated and they had lost. But still, Jesus was not done. Not only had he died for our sins, three days later he rose from the dead. 
This was the defeat of death itself, something David couldn't imagine, and still Jesus wasn't done. He has promised to complete the victory. He'll return one day. Matthew 24, verse 30 says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And with that, the borders of the new nation are eternally secure. Revelation 21, 27 says, But nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Hence, it is true that David was a mighty king. He has promised that that his son would sit on his throne to rule the nations. But it was not yet apparent to David how much greater of a conqueror and a ruler the one to come had to be. And for this reason, it's right to say that when the people of Jesus' day wanted him to defeat the Romans, their vision was far too small. The victory of this king would be greater than they would have imagined. And for us, who often, you know, chafe at our political leaders today, let's not fall into the trap of the first century Jews. Let's not say, if only we had better politicians, if only we had liberation from Rome, that's our greatest need. No, it's not. We need to be liberated from Satan and from sin and from death. See, I'm reminded of the Magi showing up in Jerusalem and causing such a great stir. Where is he, they said, who is born King of the Jews? Herod was troubled while he should have been. The question for you is simple. Will you bend the knee to the greatest king, so much greater than David could have imagined? What a wonderful story comes to us in the Christmas account. John, thanks so much for your message. You know, there would have been so many different ways you could have contrasted Jesus and David. Why choose this one? That's probably a a really good question. And and of course, there's so much to talk about, David, that I had so many different choices. And uh, However, I decided to take this one because I think it comes to the very center of what the David event is all about. David is the great king who conquers all his enemies. And Jesus is the great king who conquers all his enemies. The result of David's conquest is that his people lived in peace. And the result of Christ's final triumph is that those who are his elect have peace with God and live in an eternal kingdom. I think that's the greatest contrast. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our Christmas series, The Hope of the Ages, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, Ben Lowell, and on behalf of the entire ministry team at Back to the Bible Canada, In Doubt and Laugh Again, I want to extend our thoughts and prayers that you and your family would experience a blessed Christmas. Perhaps this Christmas I've been more reflective than others. Perhaps it's the common circumstance we've shared for nearly two years. All that has taken place in our communities, country, in fact, around the world, has reminded us that this world is filled with chaos, much beyond our control. But there is one whom I'm privileged to know, the same one who came to offer a sure and lasting hope, and that because of his arrival, sacrifice, and victory is now preparing a place where the pain and confusion of this world will pass. In the meantime, what a great news we have to share. Jesus is the hope of the ages. Merry Christmas.